Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This week we have a little bit of a format change, as we mentioned last week. And partly it's an experiment and partly makes it easier to get the podcast out since I'm doing a bit of a vacation this week. Season one is that miracle that happened that one time. And this is episode 14, Dutch Independence, the 80 Years War, when irresistible force meets immovable object. Imagine you are a resident of the richest country in Europe. By definition, things are going rather well, at least from a certain point of view. You can assert your government is incompetent, and doubtless that's true. Many social monkey, hobbits, aristocrats always are. But worse than any other? Well, that would be a weak argument. So why rebel? Why rebel against a really powerful ruler who dislikes rebellions and can't have people seceding whenever they want? Like uh, Olav Trygvason, can't have slaves cutting off the heads of kings, even when those kings are enemies. Well, there were good reasons to rebel. One was the nature of the ruler, the Habsburgs. I know some of you love the Habsburgs and have some good stories to tell about why the Habsburgs were great, particularly for the Balkans, protecting minority rights and keeping peace, fighting off and ultimately saving Europe from the Ottomans. Well, we're talking the 16th century here, Charles V, followed by Philip II of Spain. This is a super powerful realm. Spain and the Spanish colonies in the New World with all their gold and silver, the Philippines, bits of Africa, enclaves in Algeria and Tunisia. Mainly, uh, they took over those areas to protect their home country from slave raids that came from North Africa. Sardinia, the southern half of Italy, Sicily, Alsace, the Duchy of Milan, and more. Austria and its many territories were close dynastic allies, and Philip II actually married Mary Tudor. Bloody Mary, Queen of England, say it three times in the mirror. Or don't. That will be the subject of another episode. So, what's the problem? Why revolt? The problem is war. War in France, war in Italy, war in North Africa, war with the Ottoman Empire. Where was there not a war? And Philip was paying. And war was getting more expensive with cannons and gunpowder and the kind of fortifications that could resist cannons. And the Spanish were good at war. They were the best at the dawn of the 16th century. The Spanish tercio, I hear you are supposed to pronounce it tercio, with a lisp. A combined arms force of musketeers, pikemen, and swordsmen were able to defeat any European army of the time, including the famed Swiss phalanx. They came out of the Reconquista against the Moors with the best, most effective warrior culture anywhere. The conquistadors accomplished prodigies against the Aztecs and Incas. They defeated the Ottoman navy at Lepanto, mainly through boarding tactics, with assistance from the Venetians and even the Pope. The Venetians contributed some higher-tech galleys to that victory. These Western victories over the Ottomans, Lepanto in 1571 and Vienna in 1529 and again in 1683, Uh, for the final time. And 1529 was a near run. It's hard to be sure how miserable history would have been with uh, triumphant Ottomans. 
and the Spanish defeated the French over and over, who they could attack from Italy, from the Low Countries, and from the South. But the problem with fighting someone over and over is that they learn all your art of war, as Napoleon would later say, and the French got to be pretty good. Then for a while the French were the best. There's a great deal to be said about wars. They can bring about rapid change, sometimes through sheer exhaustion, and international wars can create cascading effects no one expects. But one thing you can always say, they are freaking expensive. Very expensive. And if you have enough big ones going on at once, the expense can be large relative to even a large economy. Even relative to the largest economy, and that's what we're talking about. And there weren't enough Spanish tercios for everything, so mostly expensive mercenaries were hired. And the Dutch, well, the Dutch were asked to pay for these wars. Just to pay their fair share, right? But the Dutch didn't see it as a fair share. And the Dutch saw the wars as pointless. Pointless, stupid wars which were against their best trading partners. Remember, the Dutch were a commercial nation. They had to import everything used for their weaving trade. And then they had to export the finished products. And remember the mother trade. All this trading and available shipping caused Antwerp to be like a global entrepot, with goods shipped in from all over the world like Portuguese spices, for transshipment to final markets. Remember last episode when French ports were said to be more Dutch than French? The wars encouraged French pirates to prey on Dutch trade and Dutch herring fleets. French pirates, based in Dunkirk, got rich this way. They had a whole lifestyle based on piracy against the Dutch. When you're a great trading nation, like the Dutch... Peace is a better deal, and the Dutch knew it. War and taxation. That's two good reasons. And that would be enough reasons to rebel, but there were more. Then there are traditional rights and privileges being taken away. Charles V and his son Philip II rule large empires with all kinds of local councils, local ways of doing things, local traditions, and they were pretty sick of it and tried to rationalize the whole thing to make it work better. Aha, smart people rationalizing in efficient ways people are used to, have adapted to, that never goes wrong. No, go read something like Seeing Like a State, for many other examples of that going wrong. A stupidity smart people commit. So they tended to appoint sub-rulers in places that would be directly accountable to them. And this got people angry. Powerful people got angry over what they did in Utrecht, for example. In most of the provinces, the local elites were replaced in the legal system by professional jurists. Part of the local tradition being overturned involved tolerance. And I use the word tolerance uh, more directly than most do today, where it tends to be empty corporate speak or just political nonsense. A trading culture needs to be one of great tolerance. You're exposed to a lot of people who do things in different ways. They have different beliefs, all of which needs to be tolerated if you're going to get on with making money together. You have to tolerate them. They have to tolerate you. Making money by trade is something that requires voluntary cooperation. It's an example of one of the most advanced, highest kinds of human behavior. It's something people do together voluntarily. 
Making money together requires this voluntary cooperation. The Catholic response to the rapid growth of Protestantism, the Counter-Reformation, in the 1550s, put an end to tolerance. Their idea was to drive a sword through it, to introduce the Inquisition. And who could have expected the Spanish Inquisition? Nobody. And all that repression was illegal, or it would have been. To make it legal, the king said it was legal and gave power to his own ecclesiastical representatives and funded the whole thing by taking what would normally have been revenues that supported the local church, right? And was responsible for local ministry and local charity. And it was still unjust, even though it was now legal. And everyone felt that way, even people loyal to the Habsburgs. So even though the Low Countries were majority Catholic in the 1550s, they didn't like the Inquisition either. The burnings, the trials, the executions of their neighbors, they didn't like it, and what's more, it was bad for business. And they wouldn't put up with things that were bad for business. Then there's religion, ideology, and patriotism. I mean, Protestantism was spreading everywhere. It took hold all over France. You know about northern Germany, but did you know that half the middle class in Austria were Protestants? the best-educated, independent-minded people, mainly in the cities. And damn it, we need these people. A bit like the way Christianity spread in ancient Rome, like the way it spread in Muslim Spain. The answer? Repression. Arrests, burning down churches, killing preachers. Anybody baptized as an adult? Kill them. It worked. Kind of. The Catholic powers felt under attack, and they fought back. They kept their nerve, stayed confident, and they generally won. Naturally, this policy had to be followed in all the Habsburg domains, including the Low Countries. Damned heretics, burn them all. God will sort it out later. On a per capita basis, this was one of the worst repressions in Europe. And I'll just say here that uh, we're going to talk more about this when we get on to the Reformation later. And to be fair, the Protestants were annoying and infuriating. Some of them were iconoclasts the type that would break religious paintings, carvings, and statues. And their numbers were small, but local authorities were kind of reluctant to act against them, maybe sympathize secretly. If you ever get into medieval philosophy, well, the damn Protestants had the better arguments. That would really piss you off. The situation was tense. It was out of hand. The nobles, both pro- and anti-petitioned Philip, but the local authorities, they did get things under control again and everything was cool. The worst of the iconoclasts were defeated. The cities were peaceful. But stupidity smart people commit is never far away from our story, is it? Philip sent in an army under a Spanish nobleman usually called the Duke of Alba, but whose full list of titles could fill a page. He showed up in Brussels with 10,000 mercenaries and cracked down hard. And why did he do it when the locals had already pacified things? Because pre-miracle, news traveled slow, and the orders were issued, mercenaries marching, and even post-miracle governments can overreact, as we've seen. Catholics were reacting harshly all over Europe, and it was working. So why not here, too? Alba set up a council of troubles, aptly named, as it turned out. He set up a court I forget the actual name right now, but the Dutch called it the Court of Blood. 
and over a thousand people were executed, including some of Philip's Catholic supporters. Now, why would he do this? Why kill Catholic supporters of the Habsburgs? Well, the local Habsburg nobles were not repressing Protestants fervently enough. So die then. Sounds crazy, but it happened, and happened very publicly right out in the open. Another 10,000 or so were convicted, but were able to avoid execution by fleeing the country. A few over the border to Germany, and many to England, where they were received sympathetically by many. But officially, it was complicated. The English government didn't want to get into a fight with the Spanish at this point. And it's a funny thing. I mean, sometimes this kind of super high-handed, kill-everyone type of repression works. Just think of Stalin. Think of Stalin and let your spirit soar. You know, that used to be a real thing. But sometimes it backfires, and thank goodness. Or where would we be today if rulers were not at least somewhat afraid of their subjects? In this case, many merchants, their ship captains and crews, were Calvinists. Forced to flee, they were reduced to poverty, becoming pirates. What else could they do? Convicted criminals at home because of their beliefs, but they had this great capital asset, an ocean-going ship, so put that to work for you, like an Uber driver, just with more blood. Here is where the Dutch Revolt starts. Sometimes this is called the Eighty Years' War. Yeah, it lasts a long time. It starts with William of Orange, of whom there were a lot of William of Oranges in history. This one was known as William the Silent, which immediately endears him to me, a longtime fan of Silent Cal. We should seek to place more introverts in leadership, he said, talking his own book. Seriously, though, after a long business career, I can say that many of the most effective leaders are introverts. William the Silent started out as a Catholic. As ruler of Orange, he was a prince of the Holy Roman Empire, an important technical detail. Because in a technical sense, he was Philip's equal in international law, even though Orange is barely a speck on the map. In 1568, he made war on Philip II and had every right to do so in international eyes. Actually, he wasn't that bold. He made war on Philip's bad advisor, the Duke of Alba and he issued letters of mark to those destitute ship captains we mentioned. And so the pirates were now privateers and could legitimately seek port in places like England, all above board, and like the way the Vikings used Normandy as a base against England, the Dutch could wage war at sea against Spanish shipping even when the Spanish army was occupying their whole country. This was pretty great. The pirates, I mean privateers, could take Spanish ships as prizes and sell them in England, usually at low prices, so it was a grand arrangement for everyone, and the English learned. There was a lot of Spanish shipping, and sometimes they carried rich cargo. The rebellion didn't go very well for the Dutch initially, except at sea. English privateers started to join in on attacks on Spanish shipping from Europe to the Caribbean. But on land, Silent William's first invasion from Germany petered out as he ran out of money. Money, money, money. And war. It keeps coming up. Must be the sinews. A French Huguenot invasion was beaten off by Alba, but Spain was fighting on many fronts. When Lepanto was in 1571, France was now actively anti-Spanish. Now Alba was winning, but also desperate for money. He tried to put a tenth penny tax on all transactions, 
Imagine that. Buy or sell anything except land, and he would tax 10% off the top. The local tax authorities refused to collect. This is illegal. There was negotiation. A compromise was reached. Alba ignored it and started collecting the tax anyway. This was massively unpopular, and support for the revolt started to grow again. By the way, we don't think he raised much from this tax in the end. Taxes people don't want to pay don't get paid. Spain put pressure on England to stop supporting the Dutch. And remember, Spain is number one great power, so Elizabeth expelled the Dutch privateers, known proudly as the Sea Beggars. So if you've heard that term before, that's where it comes from. Meanwhile, Alba concentrated in the south against France. The Sea Beggars found an almost undefended port town and captured it. And the rebellion flared up all over the north after this. Except for Amsterdam, most of the north declared for William and the rebellion as quick as they could. Amsterdam would join later. William moved back from Germany, and under the pressure of war, the extremists, the Calvinists, gained influence, as usually happens in unsettled times, though they were still a minority. But extremists tend to rise to the top when things are this way, and William converted to Calvinism in 1573. At this point, I should probably say something about how annoying the Calvinists were to the Catholics. They would look down their nose at Catholics. They were not shy about expressing the superiority of their views, how advanced they were, how well-educated, how backwards and superstitious the Catholics were, and the kind of things they thought, their belief in holy relics, and the magic powers of priests in the Mass, primarily. You might see parallels with today, but I won't go there. Anyway, the Southerners were annoyed enough with the Calvinists to break away and say they wanted to remain loyal to the king. But now, Spanish financial troubles kicked in. They went bankrupt. And they didn't have bullion to pay their mercenary army in Flanders. The mercenaries wouldn't take a check. They wanted to be paid in gold or silver. The troops mutinied, understandably. There was an incident, a murderous incident, called the Spanish Fury, where a mutinous troop sacked Antwerp. If you're going to sack a town for money, you might as well sack the richest town. And they did. And that was a disaster. The Protestants in Flanders fled north. The population of Antwerp fell from about 100,000 to 40,000, and the rebellion was driven by fresh energy. Refugees all over Holland, refugees appeared in England bringing skills that boosted the English economy, but in the short term, causing sympathy for the Dutch to increase so that Elizabeth was pressured to help. She sent troops that were ineffective at first, but later were indispensable, although she wisely shied away from war with Spain as long as she could. The Dutch formed a republic made up of the northern provinces, which were becoming more Protestant as anti-Spanish feeling, began to allied into anti-Catholic feeling. People take sides, and it can change their beliefs. Most beliefs we hold are pretty surface level. We signal our virtue and are usually satisfied. Beliefs change easily when emotions change. They formed a republic, which is key, but interestingly, at first, they tried to get a king. They brought over the brother of the king of France. That would be a good king, but he was a disaster. They tried to get Elizabeth as queen, but she refused, and that was pretty smart. So they set up a republic as a sort of alliance of cities and regions of the northern provinces. And they got lucky, and they took advantage of their opportunities. 
And they had this core of single-minded, fanatical Calvinists who were not going to give up. I mentioned luck. France was embroiled in their own religious wars. The Huguenots were a distraction for Alba. Later, the three-sided religious civil war between the Huguenot Protestants, mainly Calvinist, one, the French state, two, and the pro-Spanish Catholic League, three, absorbed Philip's spare cash as he heavily bankrolled the Catholic League. The crisis in France was just more consequential and dramatic, attention-grabbing for the Spanish than than the Netherlands and the Dutch Revolt, or so they all believed at the time. In the end, it was a quagmire for Spain that they could not afford, and they lost. Spain sent Alba some more money and got another army to take command in the Netherlands. He decided to besiege Leiden. This is that same siege that inspired all the great paintings. At first, the Dutch tried to break the siege, but were beaten off. The Calvinists made the hard choice to open the dikes and flood the area, driving off the Spanish that way. The rebels, therefore, won a major victory in 1574, and their prestige soared. And Spain went bankrupt again, and couldn't pay their soldiers again. And the Dutch had a pretty cool trick in their back pockets to play over and over, like Elrond releasing the floodwaters to protect Rivendell. Eventually, Spain would prioritize more money for the Netherlands, but the Dutch were lucky enough to find themselves with one of history's great military geniuses. He was a son of William the Silent, Maurice of Nassau. He applied himself with Calvinist thoroughness to military affairs. As Calvinists will, he stripped the romantic illusions out of the business of fighting and got down to essentials. The soldiers and units drilled with their weapons to great proficiency. Logistics were prioritized. Communication improved. Construction improved. Things we think of as a basic part of warfare today got their start under Maurice. And most of the great generals of the next generation from all over Europe learned their trade under Maurice. Did help come to the Dutch from all over Europe? Yes, it did. He won a series of sieges and established a line of fortresses behind which a new nation, a republic, could function, where an economic powerhouse could grow. And that's the lens we will turn towards the Dutch Republic, the United Provinces as they turn themselves as they intersect our story of England and greatly influence it. And though the Spanish never gave up exactly, they essentially could not succeed against what was now a professional army of top quality and a navy that was unrivaled in the world. There were some long truces, and eventually the Dutch Revolt got rolled into the Thirty Years' War, you know, that terrible war in Germany, mostly in Germany, which left Spain exhausted, no longer a great power in 1648, when the Dutch got their formal repentance, de jure recognition for a fact already established by the sea beggars and Maurice, 80 years after Silent William raised the flag. The main theater of the Dutch Revolt moved to England in 1588, at least as far as the miracle is concerned. Philip II finally lost patience for English support of the Dutch, and he decided to gather and sail the Armada to England. The strategic depth of the Dutch Revolt, where Protestantism flourished despite his best efforts and Mary's efforts to burn the Protestants out. Those Protestants, they have got to go. And I have just the army and navy to do it. And we'll leave it here. 
Until next episode, when we return to England. Okay, we'll figure it out. Ha <laughs> ha